when I, uh, so when I talk to people out, um, when I'm kind of just out around Vienna, and if I ask somebody, hey, what's going on? What's going on with you these days if I run into them? If it's a close friend, if somebody who knows me well, they know I'm simply asking the question to catch up with them. Like maybe I haven't seen them in a week or two. What's going on at work? What's going on with your kids or family? Anything new, something exciting, travels, anything like that? But here's what I've found uh, is casual friends and acquaintances that know I'm a minister react very differently when I ask what's going on. So usually if they're a Christian, but they don't know me very well, they start explaining what they're not doing in their life spiritually. They start telling me about how, yeah, I know I haven't been in church in a while, or, oh, you know, we should really be trying to work on our 16-year-old. He doesn't want to come to anything. And that's not what I ask, but that's what they're answering. And the same is true with people who don't really go to church anywhere, maybe even aren't even Christians. They start confessing to me. They start explaining their sin areas or struggles as if my presence is there to tell them they should be telling me stuff. And then there's the people who are Christians, who know me, acquaintances, who just avoid me. And I've found that this is usually because they're feeling guilty about something, and for some reason I represent all of that guilt, which is a false understanding of God, by the way, and a false understanding of a minister. I'm just as guilty as they are, right? But there's some role that a minister plays, and I I understand that, where we, in a sense, represent God to people. But the problem is, the question of how's it going, what's going on, is instantly answered by all of us with a series of things that we're doing or not doing. If I actually ask you, how are you doing spiritually? More likely than anything, you will answer along the lines of some measurable set of rules that you're following. When I was in high school, we measured our faith in quiet times, in scripture memory, and in the avoidance of sin. Basically, if I was doing okay, it was because I was, you know, kind of reading my Bible regularly and avoiding some certain sin that I had confessed to my brothers. All of us are the sort of people who want metrics and rules. We want to know what must I do to feel okay? What sorts of things must I accomplish to be okay? In a sense, this is what the lawyer is doing who approaches Jesus in Luke chapter 10. Now, obviously, he's also trying to test Jesus, but the basis of his testing is a religious scholarly debate, which is the sort that rabbis like this, this lawyer who would have not not been a lawyer like ours today dealing with uh, rule of law, it was the legal law of the scriptures, which was basically the rule of law in ancient Israel. They decided the minutia of interpreting and applying the law, which is what lawyers do today, right? But it was the question that he asks is trying to get down to the root of things to simplify everything, to figure out what are the rules I need to follow. And so he says to Jesus, Jesus, to test him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus smartly replies with a rabbinic answer, well, how do you read the law? And basically, he doesn't mean go and open up the the entire Bible and start reading it. How do you sum up the law? And the lawyer sums up the law in the same way Jesus would, in the same way that many others did in that ancient rabbinic culture. He says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and strength and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he's quoting from Deuteronomy and Leviticus. 
the ancient rabbis and Jesus understood this to be a summary of the entire Old Testament law. Now, the problem with this phrasing is that the sum of God's law is far worse than the description of all the commands. I would rather have hundreds of commands than this simple verse. Because think about what's actually being said here. It's not just don't commit a murder, don't commit adultery, going through all the ten and then listing out the hundreds of others. It's love God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. It's a way of saying all of you. The entirety of you, everything that's you and everything that matters to you is put in the basket of God. God is your number one. Nothing else is even close. But that's not actually how we live on a daily basis. On a daily basis, our heart and our mind, our soul, is constantly looking at other things for satisfaction and joy and peace. We turn to other gods. Archbishop William Temple, a hundred years ago, said, religion is what you do with your solitude. Your religion is what you do with your solitude. Meaning this, when you are free to think about anything, where does your mind go? When you could daydream or worry about anything, what is it you daydream or worry about? Where your mind goes naturally, whether that is projecting your career advancement, worrying about your kid's future, thinking about how much money you need to save to retire when, imagining your vacation, your dream home, your dream spouse. Whatever you think about naturally when your brain is free is your true God. So how many of you, when your brain is totally free, think only about God? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength is not easy. And unfortunately, the second one's just as bad, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. How do you love yourself? Think about all the things that you do or think about on a daily basis that are you thinking about yourself. I eat, I sleep. I'm worried about what I'm going to wear. I have no idea what you are thinking about any of those things. On a daily basis, I'm concerned with my work, my career, my savings account, my kids. I'm constantly looking to enjoy life or worried about my life. It's easy for me to think about myself. This command is saying, okay, deal with others with the same energy and focus you put on yourself. Not just be a kind neighbor, love others as you love yourself. This double command, love God, love others, is an amazing challenge to every cultural type. To the religious and the conservative, to the secular and the liberal, it challenges everything about us. The religious person looks at this set of commandments and is like, yep, yeah, that's great, love God. I care about God. I care about religious things. I follow the commandments. I go to church. I pray. I give money. But when push comes to shove, most religious people put caring for the poor secondly. A secular or liberal American would say, yes, yes, love your neighbor. 
That is the high calling of Christianity. Love your neighbor, care for the poor, defend the oppressed. These things are important. But love God, what's that got to do with anything? How come he's always up in our business? Can we just love neighbor and forget about the God part? Neither the religious nor the secular does both fully. And in fact, neither does their preferred side to the full. Love God, love your neighbor. Jesus says, okay, that's great, good answer. Do this and you will live. And the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, it says in verse 29, says, okay, Jesus, let's be realistic here. Who is my neighbor? Now, in rabbinic Judaism of the first couple centuries before and after Christ, it was common to try to delineate, demarcate all the rules. If you're supposed to rest on your Sabbath, what does that actually mean? What can you get away with? And so they came up with rules that weren't listed in the Bible, like one mile. You can walk up to one mile on a Sabbath. And of course, some were known to then walk a mile, rest, and then from that point, walk another mile and rest, because in that, they only walked one mile at a time on a given day. But the idea behind the rabbinic question is trying to figure out what's realistic. And sometimes you have to do this with laws. When a law says, do not... You have to say, okay, so let's figure this out a little bit. And that's essentially what the the lawyer is doing. He's saying the sort of thing we would say, Jesus, let's be reasonable and realistic here. What does it really mean? What does it really look like to love your neighbor? I mean, who is my neighbor? It can't be all six billion people in the world, right? Who is my neighbor? We do the same sort of thing all the time with the commands of God. We give ourselves outs and excuses. Look, I'm a really busy person. I don't really have space, time, to volunteer, to get involved in that mess. I mean, what's realistic, Jesus? I've got my charities. I help the neighbor across the street who's a widow. And does that cover me? What we all tend to do is seek to justify ourselves. It's how we tend to think about how we're doing. But here's what I've found is most of us have a set of rules that we've decided on our own. Measurables that are how we evaluate how we're doing spiritually, morally, in life, in general. And we come up with rules of our own doing, and as long as we're accomplishing those, we feel okay. Okay, so if I go to church two to three times a month, doing all right. I gave $5,000 to charity last, last year. I'm doing all right. So long as I hit my measurables, I'm okay. And the reason why we come up with a set of measurables is because we're constantly comparing ourselves to others. When you ask, are you a good person? How are you doing spiritually? Instantly, people justify themselves. All of us do it by comparing ourselves to somebody else. Now, we'll admit, humbly, we're no Mother Teresa. That's always sort of the one that's said. But I'm also no Adolf Hitler. As long as I'm in between those, that's a pretty wide swath, by the way. There's a lot of range in there. So long as I'm better than some, or kind of in the middle, you know, The bell curve, I'm kind of like, see average, I should be all right. 
Jesus will not let the lawyer off the hook. And he won't let us off the hook either. So he tells a parable. Who is my neighbor? Let me tell you a story. A certain man was going on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, this 17-mile dangerous journey in the midst of the wilderness, passing through caves and over passes. One of the passes was called the Pass of Blood because of the sort of things that happened along that path. He was jumped by robbers, by terrorists, essentially, by rebels, by people who don't care about the law. He was jumped by them, mugged, beaten, robbed, stripped, and lying there naked and half dead. And Jesus wants us at first to think about the state of this man who is traveling alone and is now on the side of the road, bloody, broken, beaten, and completely helpless and needy. He's in extreme pain. He's not sure if he's going to live. But God, in his mercy, sends a horse coming along, a mule coming along, and he hears it. And maybe if he can kind of open his eye, he sees that it's a priest. But the priest passes by on the far side of the road and doesn't stop. And next, a Levite, another religious leader, comes along and passes by on the far side of the road. The priests and Levites were two of the highest in the culture. Socioeconomically, they were at the top of the food chain. The priests were the the smaller group. They were the ones who worked in the temple proper. They did the sacrifices. The Levites were the bigger group, about a twelfth of the entire nation. But they served in the temple and in religious things as well. These are two of the highest in the food chain, spiritually, religiously, economically, and socially. Now, before we jump on them too quickly for their passing by this guy, there were reasons to pass by on the other side. For one, it was incredibly dangerous. It was incredibly dangerous to stop. If this guy is bloody and beaten and he's not dead yet, then where are the bad guys? And for that matter, you don't know why he's in the condition he's in. Maybe he's a part of some, some crew, some, some terrorist group, and he just got thrown out of their crew. Maybe this has happened for a reason. And besides that, it is dangerous. I mean, if you're walking in the city at night by yourself and down a dark alley, you hear moaning. Do you go towards it or do you go away? At best, you might be like, maybe I should call 911, kind of knock on the closest store. Hey, there's somebody down the alley moaning. You should do something about that. It's dangerous. It's not our business, right? And on top of that, these are religious leaders. And if you know anything about ancient Judaism, they had extreme rules for clean and unclean. And that's why you have food laws like don't eat pork, amongst other things. When a priest was unclean because of any particular reason for breaking a particular rule of clean and unclean, they were no longer able to serve. Now think about it. A priest has a very important role for the entire nation. Tens of thousands of people relied on him to serve his role when he was there as a priest. If he makes himself unclean, because if you touch a dead body, you don't know if the guy's dead yet, if you touch a dead body, you are unclean for several weeks. I can't go and touch. If the guy dies on me, I'm unclean. 
And they took this very, very seriously, the clean and unclean thing. So much so that a collection of writings called the Mishnah, which might have been written before or after Jesus, rabbinic writings that gave rules and instructions, it had this to say about an unclean priest who tried to serve in the temple while being unclean. A priest... See if we can pull up that quote there on the Mishnah. Yeah, a priest who served while ritually impure. His fellow priests do not bring him out to the court. Rather, the young priests are to take him outside the temple courtyard and split his skull with clubs. Go ahead, you try to serve while unclean. There's rules for that sort of thing. You don't want to break those rules. There may be justifiable reasons for not helping, but not in Jesus' view. He goes on to say, by chance, a Samaritan happened to be going along the same road. And when he saw the man, he had compassion and he went to him. He did not avert his eyes. He looked at his condition and stepped into the pain and suffering and need of this man, lying naked and beaten on the side of the road. He bandaged the man, pouring on the oil and wine that were in his supplies, a way of cleaning, disinfecting. He set the man on his own animal, walking the rest of the way, bringing him into the nearest village, And that night, he spent the night with the man, caring for the man, nursing him. And the next day, he pulls out two denarii, two days' wages, which would have been enough to stay at an inn for two to three weeks, and says to the innkeeper, take care of him. And when I return, whatever other costs he incurs, I will pay for. Jesus' parable challenges deep heart issues that the lawyer has and that we all have. At the root of this story is something that if you've been in church or grown up in uh, Sunday school classes, you know about the difference between Jews and Samaritans. They hated each other. There were several hundred years of political unrest between them, much like in the Middle East today. They were racially, religiously, politically, and socially opposites. Each thought the other was the problem. Each thought the other was the oppressor. There was absolute and total hatred between these two groups. Take any divided groups that there are today and multiply it to the extreme, and this is the way Jews and Samaritans viewed each other, with absolute distrust, absolute disdain, absolute hate. Now, the the challenge with Jesus' parable is that he tells it all wrong. So a good Jew listening to the story, including a rabbi, would have known that the third character should not have been a Samaritan. It's like when you're telling one of those kind of priest-rabbi jokes. There's sort of a formula to it. Well, Jesus tells a parable, and the parable goes, a priest was passing by, and then a Levite was passing by, and the thinking in the crowd listening to Jesus that day was the third person passing by should have been a Jewish peasant, not a Samaritan. And it should have been a story about how a Jewish peasant who wasn't a religious leader showed up the religious leaders and how it overturns the religious leader's role and that the real hero is a Jewish peasant who saves his own countrymen who's lying dead on the side of the road. But Jesus doesn't tell the story about the good Jewish peasant. Jesus reverses it 
but not in the way we or the crowd would expect if we were there that day. If he had said, a Jewish peasant walked along and helped a fellow Jewish peasant, the crowd would have been like, yay! The poor people, they helped the other poor, great. If he had gone and reversed it entirely and said, a Jewish peasant was the third and the guy lying in the road was a Samaritan, the lawyer and everybody listening would have laughed. They would have mocked Jesus. A Samaritan is beaten up, lying half dead on the side of the road naked, and any priest, Levite, or Jewish peasant comes riding along, seeing the guy, the Samaritan, half dead, they ride up and kick him to make sure he's fully dead, and then they ride on. That's what you do if you find a Samaritan half dead on the side of the road. The only good Samaritan is a dead one. Everyone knows that. No. He reverses it entirely. The hero is a Samaritan who shows mercy to a Jew who is in need. Jesus is blowing the lawyer's categories of neighbor and enemy. You know, we all have prejudice and bias. We do. Our prejudice and bias is usually based on our true God and our functional Savior. So, if what you really live for is your intelligence, or being successful, or the kind of person who has everything together, or you're athletic, or your kids are great, your family's great, whatever it is that you really live for, what you justify yourself with, you will feel superior to those who can't measure up. You will feel superior to those who aren't as smart, or successful, or together, or athletic, or whatever it is you use to justify yourself. You will disdain those who disagree with you. If your religion is the basis of your identity, if your politics are where you find salvation, if your moral beliefs and upholding them are what save you, then those who don't need to be disdained. We live in fear of those who are different because we're always trying to justify ourselves. On Friday, I rode out to Middleburg in order to do a little bit of sermon preparation. In part, it was because I find that one of the places I pray the best is on the road, driving. So driving out, I'm seeing all the beautiful leaves and trees. I stop in Middleburg at a coffee shop. And while I'm there reading a book, a commentary on this very passage and kind of thinking through all the implications of the Good Samaritan parable, I get pushed out of my seat out front of this coffee shop by Middleburgians. I don't know what you actually call them. But you can tell that they're native Middleburgers because of the, 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 the boots and the attire and the general northern European beauty, the sort of age, the freedom of time and money to do whatever you want. Eventually, I had to move locations because 10 or 12 of them had gathered with the mid-afternoon just to chat away their day sipping coffee. And I thought, those smug, self-righteous <laughs> prigs, they got their little clique of boots and money and time. And right as I was thinking these things, the Holy Spirit, which does exist, started convicting me. 
And, I, and I, I think I might have actually even said to myself, shut up, Holy Spirit. Let me disdain these people for just a little bit. They deserve it. <laughs> Stupid Holy Spirit. <laughs> we all, we all, we all find people to look down on. Because we all, by nature, self-justify. We're constantly trying to define who is in and who is out and make sure that we are in. We may not do this explicitly, but the direction of our lives says it's true. The lawyer's question is, who is my neighbor? He wants to fence. He wants to clarify. He wants it to be reasonable. Who can I actually bring in or out, right? Am I in? Jesus' question is not, who is your neighbor, but who was the neighbor? What does it look like to be one? Who was the neighbor? And the lawyer is forced to say, the one who showed mercy. He can't even bring himself to say, the Samaritan. Go and do likewise. Jesus' challenge is what makes a neighbor. What makes a neighbor based on this Samaritan is compassion. Compassion, the word that's used there, actually means you are physically moved, almost like a stomach ache, like you need to throw up. Your, your insides are torn up. The Samaritan sees the man and his insides are torn up because he is feeling and experiencing what this other man is feeling and experiencing. Psychologically and emotionally, he allows himself to invest. In order to do neighboring, you actually have to be personal. You have to get involved. At the end of the day, that man, that Samaritan man, was bloody and dirty and exhausted through the night caring for this man. You have to engage emotionally with compassion for everyone in need. Jesus' question is essentially this, who is on your road? Some of this is the Spirit's call convicting you in the broader world to care for the widow or the orphan. And sometimes it's the Spirit's prompting of just who did the Lord put on your path this day? Are you riding past them or are you stopping to get dirty? Compassion. The second thing that a neighbor does or has is generosity. When you look at what the Samaritan did, he used all his available resources to care for this stranger who was an enemy socially, religiously, racially. He takes and bandages the man. He did not have a little package in there to pull out his adhesive bandages and, and his wraps. He probably took off his turban, ripped a part of his own clothing in order to bandage up the, moon, the man's wounds. He uses his own resources of, of oil and wine, probably the very things, the little bits that he was carrying with him for the journey to care for the man. He gives of his time. He gives of his safety, riding into that town and taking care of him in the inn. One commentator suggested this equivalent of the danger that he put himself in, the sacrificial cost. He said this would be the equivalent of if a Samaritan's riding into a Jewish city with a half-dead, naked Jewish guy on a horse and says, yeah, I just found him this way. I don't know how it happened. 
no one would have believed him. It would be like in the middle of the 1800s, out in Kansas, a Native American finds a cowboy with two arrows in his back, picks him up, puts him on his horse, rides him into Dodge City, goes to the saloon, says, I need a room for the night. I found this guy. I don't know how the arrows got in his back. I don't know who shot him, but here he is, and tries to take care of him that night. It would be unlikely that Native American would make it through the night. The lynching would happen pretty quick. It was extreme danger he was putting himself in to care for this Jewish man in a Jewish context when he was a Samaritan. It is costly. Neighbor love will cost you. It will cost you money. It will cost you time. It will cost you energy. It will cost you emotion. But it's the call of Scripture. Justice and mercy. Isaiah 58, 6 and 7 says, This is what the Lord desires, not sacrifices, not fasting, but to let the oppressed go free, to share your bread with the hungry, to care for the homeless poor, bringing them into your house, to see the naked and to cover them. God identifies with the poor and the oppressed, with the orphan and the widow and the foreign and the poor. Jesus himself was poor. He had one cloak. He had to borrow a donkey. He had to borrow an upper room for his last supper. He was oppressed, falsely accused, no legal recourse, no one to defend him, and falsely executed in a broken justice system. Jesus identifies with the poor and the oppressed. And he calls us to do the same, to extend justice and mercy. Justice and mercy means want for your neighbor what you'd want for yourself and to the same degree. You want a job and you want food. You want your kids to be successful. You want health care to be provided. You want to know that you're safe You want to have an opportunity. You want to have a voice. Justice and mercy requires us to do the same for our neighbor. Okay, so how many of you feel guilty now? Don't feel guilty, that's dumb. Guilt will not motivate you. The thing is, people who are religious or secular often are moralistic when it comes to good deeds and get very, very rules-oriented. But rules and guilt will only get you so far. You'll just make a checklist. You'll do the checklist to your own limits, and then you'll feel good about yourself. But you won't go far enough, not as far as Jesus wants you to go. The only way to love your neighbor as yourself is to love God with your whole self first. To love God more than your race, or your political party, or your career, or your family, or your bank account. But the only way to love God that much is to know how much God loves you first. Why is the Samaritan the hero and the Jewish man, the one in need, lying on the side of the road? Jesus wants the lawyer to see himself in the road. What if you, lawyer, 
were beaten, naked, half dead on the side of the road. And a Samaritan, an alien and enemy of yours, was the one who stopped for you and at great cost to himself saved you. Will you accept being saved by that sort of a person? What if one comes from the outside and is your only hope of salvation? Will you accept being saved? The lawyer cannot save himself by following the law and being good or religious. Neither can we. We need grace and mercy. We need Jesus, and so does our neighbor. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, in Ephesians it says, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive together with Christ. By grace we are saved. When we were dead on the side of the road, you rescued us, restored us and healed us, and gave us new life. May we do the same for those around us. Amen.